0: Our God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. Our God rejoices in repentant sinners when the prodigal son comes home. Our God delights and rejoices in that. Our God delights to forgive sins. He says to the repentant, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. God's compassion is infinite, his mercy is boundless, his love flows out in every direction. He can forgive any sin, he can save any sinner, doesn't matter how big the sin is, doesn't matter how terrible and wicked the sinner has been, God in his grace can overcome that sin. God can forgive it. Our sin is never a match. For God's grace, God's grace abounds even to the chief of sinners. In the beginning, God created us in love and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Adam and his wife were enfolded in the love of God. They had a relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But then in our first parents, we rebelled against God. We rebelled against God's love, and we became sinners. But then God, in his abundant mercy and grace and wisdom, in his infinite and overflowing love, sent his son to save the world. He sent his son to redeem us from sin by bearing the penalty we deserve on the cross, dying a death we deserve, and bringing us new life through his Holy Spirit. God saves sinners. Any sin can be forgiven Any sinner can be saved. And all of this, of course, means that we have hope. We have an undying hope, an unyielding hope. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God can overcome it. God can cover it. God can transform you. God can forgive you. God can heal you. God is more ready to forgive your sin than you are to confess it. God can really take away all your guilt and all your shame. God is in the business of redeeming sinners. He restores the broken. He comforts us. He assures us. He gives us peace and joy. In a world filled with bad news, God gives us good news, indeed the best news. In a world of darkness, God shines the light of his love to overcome that darkness. In a world of lies, God speaks and reveals truth to us. In a world of shattered lives, God puts the pieces back together and makes them even better than they were before. In a world of death, God gives life. Not only that, but God promises victory to his people. He promises vindication to all who hope in him. He will defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil. He will conquer death. He promises to us eternal glory in his new creation. And through the coming of his son into the world and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, he has planted his kingdom in this world. And it is growing in history. And it will ultimately make the kingdoms of this world to be the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so all who trust in this God, all who rest in this God, all who worship the true and living God should always be full of encouragement and confidence. We should be brimming with joy God has poured his love into us. We should be full to overflowing with his love. That's the good news. God saves sinners. God is saving the world. I wanted to start with that reminder of the good news this morning because we are going to get into some hard things today, and I wanted to make sure you would have a soft landing place. The gospel gives sinners a safe Space, a place of refuge. It gives us shelter. And we need that, especially when we talk about some of the hard truths in God's Word. Uh, As I said in the announcements this morning, I'm not going to do what I usually do, which is just work methodically through a passage of Scripture. That's how I like to preach. That's what you get a steady diet of here. But uh, this morning I want to do something more topical, and occasional. I want to talk about the conversation that has dominated our nation for the last week and a half or so and will continue to dominate uh, the conversation in our nation for quite some time. Of course I'm talking about the recent Dobbs Supreme Court decision that reversed the Roe decision from 1973 and put the abortion issue back on the states. The Supreme Court Rule that there is no constitutional right to an abortion, and indeed, there never was. Now, there are a lot of reasons to consider this issue in a sermon. Again, admittedly, this is not the kind of sermon I usually preach where we focus on a single text of scripture. Nevertheless, I do think it's important for us to do this. Think about it this way when some big event happens in your life, As a Christian, you have to connect that event to the scriptures. You want to look at that event in your life in light of the scripture. And so, for example, if you go through some terrible trial, scripture speaks to that. Scripture has a whole theology of trials, which tells you how to respond and how to deal with that trial. If you get married, scripture speaks to that. It tells you how to live in your new life as husband and wife. If you are uh, engaged in some kind of work, Uh, some kind of work that you have been uh, assigned to do, called to do. Scripture speaks to that. It gives us a whole theology of work. Scripture is what you could call a heart book. Scripture is a heart book. It trains our hearts. It trains our hearts in what to desire and what to love. It trains our hearts in how to think and, of course, how to act because the actions of life flow out of the heart. It trains our heart in how to respond to different events and situations that we encounter. Scripture is a heart book. It addresses the human heart in every facet. But Scripture is also a history book. And sometimes in the church today, we get so focused on the heart, we miss this side of things. Scripture is also a history book. And so just as Scripture speaks to events in our personal lives, so Scripture speaks to events that happen in the life of a nation, events that take place on the stage of history. And so, for example, if a nation goes to war, Scripture speaks to that. Scripture has a great deal to say to that. It defines for us just and unjust warfare, when to fight, when not to fight, and how to fight. If a nation experiences great prosperity, or great poverty, Scripture speaks to that as well, how to handle that. And if a nation legalizes or criminalizes abortion, Scripture certainly speaks to that as well. Scripture has a great deal to say about this issue of abortion. Scripture has a great deal to say about pre-born humans. When you actually start to look into this, it's amazing how much Scripture deals with pre-born human life. Scripture has a great deal to say about justice and about the right to life, which is rooted in the holiness and sacredness of God's law. And so the Bible is both a heart book and a history book. It deals with personal experience and with national experience. It deals with events that happen to us as individuals, and it deals with events that happen to us corporately in larger groups. It is both personal and social And so when we look at what a post-Roe America, what that means to now live in a post-Roe America, what should we consider in light of Scripture? What's most important? How does God want us to look at this? How does God want us to respond? How does God want us to act in light of what's happened? First, let's make sure we do understand exactly what has happened. From 1973 until this year, abortion was federally protected. Under the Roe decision, 60 million-plus babies were killed in the womb. 60 million-plus. Think about how we talk about the Nazis who killed, what, 6 million? Ten times that killed in America under Roe. Ten times that. 60 million-plus killed in the womb over the last 49 years in the United States. Some knew what they were doing. Some didn't when they got an abortion. Some were pressured into it. Some shouted their abortions. Some have confessed their sin and found forgiveness. Some have not. But 60 million lives have been taken in the womb. 60 million lives in the womb destroyed. That's Roe. That's the legacy of Roe. 60 million image bearers, 60 million divine image bearers destroyed. Now, the Dobbs ruling reversed row, the Dobbs ruling has put abortion back on the states, so each state can decide its own abortion laws. And about half the states in the U.S. have more or less outlawed or at least greatly restricted abortion. Uh, the fact that this ruling was handed down during Pride Month is an irony that many have noticed. Perhaps Pride Month now can become known as Life Month. Uh, It should also be noticed that Dobbs does not end abortion any more than the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery in the United States. But just as the Emancipation Proclamation was an important step to that end, so the Dobbs decision is an important step forward. It's not the destination, it's not the goal, but it is a significant step forward. All the more so because so many people thought we would never see it. Now, what about here in Alabama? It's been put back on the states. What does that mean for us? Well, in Alabama, uh, procedures, uh, abortion procedures are now outlawed in the state of Alabama. We actually passed, our legislature actually passed a near total ban on abortion back in 2019, but that law had been put on hold by a federal judge because of Roe. Well, now that law can be enforced. There's been a lot of propaganda put out from the pro-abortion side against the Dobbs ruling and against laws like what we have here in Alabama. Some have said, for example, that uh, this new ruling, the Dobbs ruling and the kind of laws we have here in the state of Alabama will make it impossible for women to get the care they need when they have miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies. That's just simply not true. Those are lies. A miscarriage is categorically different from an abortion. A miscarriage is accidental and tragic, but you would never call it an injustice. It's just not that kind of thing. An abortion, by contrast, intentionally takes an innocent life. It's tragic for a different reason. It is an injustice. Likewise, an ectopic pregnancy is an objective medical condition in which both the mother and baby will die if nothing is done medically. It's really kind of a triage situation where you can't save both mother and baby, so you save the life of the one you can, which is the mother. You can look into this and research it yourself, but the bottom line is, laws like what we have in the state of Alabama clearly distinguish miscarriages and ectopic pregnancies from abortion, which again is the intentional taking of a human life, the life in the womb. Of course, there are still a lot of loose ends to tie up. For example, the Jefferson County DA has said he will not prosecute violations of our state law against abortion. So even here in Alabama, the battle for life is far from over. Or to give you another example of this. The Alabama law does not make the morning after pill. Uh, or the Plan B pill, illegal. There are many uh, oral contraceptives that actually act as abortifacients. That's not something that everybody's aware of, but it's true. Clarence Thomas has pointed that out. Those are things that will have to be dealt with as well. And that may be the next big battleground uh, in this issue. The goal of any abortion law should be justice. It should be justice as defined by the law Of God. And in this case, that means the protection of innocent life in the womb. And I would say equal protection for the life in the womb. Scripture is clear, and quite frankly, now the science is clear. The the child in the womb is a human. The child in the womb is a human. The life in the womb is a distinct human life and should be protected accordingly, should have all the rights and privileges that come with being. the fact that there are still loose ends should not keep us from celebrating this victory god has given to us it's been a long time quite frankly it's been a long time since christians have had a victory of this magnitude in the public square on the national stage i want you to think about this for 49 years christians have been raising awareness about this issue very slowly at first the church was caught somewhat flat-footed and off guard Uh, in the early 70s when this happened, but as Christians came to a better understanding of what abortion is, and and the clear biblical truth that that life in the womb is a human life, it is an image-bearing life, Christians have responded. We have prayed, we have marched, we have lobbied, we have set up literally thousands of crisis pregnancy centers across the country to help women. Proving that when pro-life people are accused of only caring about life in the womb and not outside the womb, that is a lie because these, pro, these crisis pregnancy centers provide care for the woman holistically. Uh, the care is not just for the baby, it's for the woman as well. That's very clear. Indeed, I would say our whole heritage as Christians is one of showing compassion to those in need. Showing compassion to those who are in need, even if they are in need, even if they are in in a crisis situation, because of their own sin. Christians have still been there to show compassion. We, we Christians, invented the hospital. We invented the orphanage. We invented the crisis pregnancy center. And while we're certainly not perfect, for the last 50 years, Christians have shown up and helped women in need and their babies. I have seen women helped by crisis pregnancy centers, by Christians coming around a woman in need in a crisis situation. I have seen the lives of babies saved because of it. Christians have provided resources to pregnant women before, during, and after birth. Christians have faithfully spoken out against the violence and barbarism of abortion. People say, oh, repealing Roe is going to take us back to the Dark Ages. No, abortion is from the Dark Ages. That's the darkness. We're moving towards the light. Christians have spoken out against the violence and the barbarism of abortion, including things like partial birth birth abortion, which... I won't describe it for you here. We have children present. It's a very gross and graphic procedure. But you should look it up and know about it and be familiar with what happens in an abortion, what it's like, and particularly a partial birth birth abortion. We have spoken out against fully formed and fully viable babies being thrown away like garbage or having their body parts sold by Planned Parenthood. We have seen, we we have dealt with all kinds of opposition. We have seen all kinds of opposition and dealt with it. So, for example, we've seen the skyline of New York City lit up pink to celebrate a law passed a few years ago giving a woman in the state of New York the right to an abortion right up to the very moment of birth. We have seen 41 senators of a certain political party I will not name 41 senators opposed 2019's Born Alive Survivors Act, which was designed to protect babies who are born alive after a failed abortion, after a botched abortion. We've seen the former governor of Virginia say that a baby born alive after a botched abortion should be, quote-unquote, kept comfortable while the mother decides if it should live or die. We're talking now about a child outside the womb showing that the line between abortion and infanticide is very thin indeed. In the weeks before the Dobbs decision was handed down, we saw a version of Justice Alito's opinion get mysteriously leaked, apparently in an attempt to derail it, to use political pressure to derail it. We've heard about an attempt to assassinate one of the pro-life justices on the Supreme Court. We've seen crisis pregnancy centers where pro-life people do the very work they're accused of not doing, get vandalized. It has been a long, hard road for the pro-life movement, and we're certainly not at the end of it. But we can say, in light of Dobbs, 49 years of persistence and service and prayer have paid off. A victory that many thought could not be won has been won. God has mercifully granted us this victory. And we should be grateful. As much as we have prayed about this issue, we should certainly stop and give God thanks for what he's done. There's more to pray about, more to work for, but we should stop and give God thanks for what he's done. And indeed, I would even say, under God, we give thanks to God ultimately, but under God, there are many others who should be thanked as well. We should certainly thank those five justices who had the courage to hand down this ruling. They are real American heroes, I would say especially Clarence Thomas. But they are real American heroes. It took courage, it took guts to do what they did. We should thank former President Trump and Senate leader Mitch McConnell, whatever you might think of them as men or as politicians. They helped make this happen. They were very instrumental. They were used by God to make this happen. There's an old saying, God can use a crooked stick to, to strike a straight line. And I would say, we've seen a case of that uh, here. Uh, you know that I am not uh, reluctant at all to criticize what I believe are serious errors and falsehoods in the Roman Catholic Church. And I can't help here but point out that uh, the Roman Church is very divided on this issue of abortion. Some of the most aggressively pro-choice, pro-abortion politicians in our nation are Roman Catholics, like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. But still, we have to give credit where credit is due. The Roman Catholic Church had a great deal to do with this victory. They know how to get conservative judges into the system and into high positions. And so take note of this. Four of the five justices who overturned Roe are Roman Catholic. Five of the six, if you count Roberts with his middle-of-the-road opinion. We should be grateful for that. We should thank all who have served in and funded crisis pregnancy centers. This is millions upon millions of Christians, mostly who would identify as evangelical Christians, who have served in and funded crisis pregnancy centers to help women And their babies in need. There are about 2,300 crisis pregnancy centers in the United States. They're virtually all staffed and run by Christians with the express purpose of showing love and mercy to women and babies in need, to evangelize them, to give them the good news of the gospel, and to care for them in a time of great crisis. We should thank the state of Mississippi, our neighbors to the West, whose law restricting abortion became the basis for the Dobbs ruling. We should thank all who have prayed about abortion and all the issues related to abortion over the years. We've certainly made this issue central to our prayer life here at TPC on Sunday mornings in the pastoral prayer, Wednesday nights at Vespers. I know in your own prayer life, so many of you have had a burden to pray for this issue continually. You need to understand, you need to remember, those prayers have now been answered, at least in part. Those prayers brought about this historic moment. We should also thank those women who had abortions, who realized how terrible it was, what it did to them, and what they had done to their child, who repented, and who then shared their story with others. We should thank those brave women as well. And we should thank those couples who have adopted children who otherwise would have been aborted. I could keep going, but you get the point. Under God, as we give thanks to God, there are many others to be thanked for this victory as well. Some I've seen in the last week and a half or so, some have said we should not celebrate Dobbs. It's unloving to do so because there are people who are angry about it, people who are hurt by it. I simply disagree. I simply disagree with that. I think Christian leaders who are warning us about celebrating this victory are really acting like Pharisees. This is a very justified joy that God has brought about this reversal we must celebrate victories like this one when you win a significant battle in a war that has already claimed 60 million casualties you have to celebrate it may only be a small step towards justice but it is a step nonetheless and again a step that came against great odds a step many thought could never be taken it is an answer to prayer and anytime we get an answer to prayer we should celebrate We should give thanks. It is a sign further that God uses his people to accomplish great things. And yes, I do think this will reduce the number of abortions because the harder it is to get an abortion, the fewer there will be. I do think it will have an effect. So when we look at where we are in our culture, when we look at where we are in our culture in light of Scripture, what can we say? What are the main Themes that we need to address, the main things that we really need to grasp if you want to understand this issue. I'm going to take it for granted here that everybody does know the basic arguments for why the child in the womb is a human. It is an image bearer. I'm going to take that for granted here. I'm not going to deal with that issue so much, but I want to give you three things that I think are very important for us to recognize. First, we've got to understand that the abortion issue is not merely a culture war issue. It is a spiritual war issue. Think about it in Ephesians 6 where Paul says we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of darkness in high places. When we deal with the abortion issue, that's really what we're dealing with. And this is why, quite frankly, it's appropriate material for a sermon. This isn't merely politics. This is a spiritual issue. You might even say a liturgical issue. In the ancient world, they very clearly understood this. In the ancient world, child sacrifice was a very common practice. People would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. Molech was the god you offered your child to in child sacrifice. It was an act of worship. Scripture, of course, condemned this. Molech was a kind of death cult, but I would say Molech worship is still with us. Oh, today we've sanitized it, we give it a different name, but I would say abortion is still just service to Molech. Just like if you worship money, you're really worshiping mammon. We can say abortion really is service to Molech. Now, we may rename Molech something like career or convenience or mental health or financial well-being. But the dynamic is still the same. It's still about sacrificing a child hoping to gain personal blessing. Abortion is a false, bloody sacrament of an idolatrous religion. We've got to understand that. Abortion is murder, and Satan was a murderer from the beginning, John tells us, or Jesus tells us. This is a spiritual issue. Now, ask this question. If it is a spiritual issue, if this is a spiritual war we're fighting, how do we fight it? You know, the American culture wars, as they're called, tend to be very ugly. They're full of hateful and mocking rhetoric, especially on social media. Social media has uh, been terrible for the American culture wars, which were bad enough already. As Christians, we simply have to frame the issue differently. Yes, we do disagree with those who are pro-abortion, but we can speak with love and with respect to those we disagree with. We should be very careful not to adopt the tactics of the enemy as we seek to defeat the enemy. Yes, we speak truth, even hard-edged truth, which I would say I'm doing some of that this morning. We speak truth even truth when it has hard edges, but we do so in love. We do so in a compassionate way. We've got to understand where the true power is found. This is another way of understanding abortion as a spiritual issue. We've got to understand where the true power is found. Do not, I repeat, do not ascribe the Dobbs' victory solely to political activism. This victory was won because for 50 years, Christians have shown up, and in the name of Jesus, they have loved hurting people in crisis situations. Christians have sacrificed and prayed and preached on this issue. That's why we got this victory. Political activism has its place. I'm not saying that we dismiss it altogether, but it is secondary. The real power to change the world is found in the tools and weapons that Christ has given to his church. And so I'll put it this way just to be clear. The Republican Party did not accomplish this. If the the Republican Party could have done this, they would have done it a long time ago. They would have accomplished this victory a long time ago. No, the church did this. I would say the same when the Berlin Wall fell and communism collapsed. You know, we give President Reagan a lot of credit for that, and he certainly had a key role in it. But if you really dig into the history of that, you find there was an army of praying saints. There were pastors been a pope if we want to tell the whole story involved in bringing that about it was not just because of political activism it's because god's people cried out god's people proclaimed truth god's people prayed and so it is here now that should remind us too that this is a very fragile victory god has given it to us god can take it away it's a very incomplete victory there's still work to be done in fact, I'll tell you this. What the Dobbs ruling means is that the gates of hell have been shaken. But hell always fights back. The battle's not over. We have to keep doing these things we've been doing. We are not done. So that's the first thing. You've got to understand this as a spiritual issue, a spiritual war issue, not just a culture war issue. Second, we've got to view children biblically we have to see children as blessings as gifts from the lord now i think we do a pretty good job of this here at tpc if you just look around and you see all the little kids running around you can say yeah we got this one we can check this one off and i would agree with that but still because this is so countercultural, i still want to mention it children are a gift from the lord a, a glorious gift a precious gift We read in Genesis 1, God commands the human race, the man and the woman in the beginning, to be fruitful and multiply. That command's never been rescinded. Matthew 19, Jesus takes covenant children into his arms and blesses them. In the previous chapter, Matthew 18, he uses little children as an illustration of the kind of humility it takes to enter his kingdom. Psalm 127, children are described as a heritage from the Lord, an inheritance. You're supposed to leave your children an inheritance, but the Lord is giving you an inheritance and giving you children. Malachi 2 says God makes the husband and wife one in the covenant of marriage because he seeks Godly offspring. God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, I will be a God to you and to your children. In Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he tells the repentant sinners there, the promise is to you and to your children. The Bible is pro-baby. The Bible is pro-child. The Bible tells us again and again, children are a gift. We've got to understand that and embrace that. And we need to understand, too, how widespread the anti-child mentality is in our culture, what's sometimes called anti-natalism. And you see this in rapidly dropping birth rates. Birth rates are at record lows right now for a reason. And really, again, it's a spiritual reason, not just economic. And I, we can go into the details why that's the case. It's not just an economic issue, it is a spiritual issue. This is a worldview issue. Our culture is anti child. If people don't want to have kids, you can give them all kinds of money and benefits and incentive to have kids. They still won't have kids because countries all around the world are trying to do this because they know that they are moving towards a demographic disaster. People do not start having more children, but you cannot make people have children if they don't want them. You just can't. You can't incentivize it financially. It's a worldview issue. It's a spiritual issue. And when we talk about the anti-child mentality in our culture, abortion is kind of the big E on the I-chart, but abortion is just the tip of the iceberg. Our culture hates children. Any culture that rebels against God will hate life and therefore hate children. Our culture will only play up the negatives about children. They'll tell you uh, kids are inconvenient and expensive, and they're bad for the environment. They require 24-7 attention and sacrifice from their parents. But what our culture won't tell you is that kids are worth it. Whatever inconvenience or sacrifice they require, they are worth it. Many of life's greatest joys are tied to children. And not only that, but we see in Scripture for God's people, children are vital to the growth of God's kingdom in the world. The vast majority of Christians who have ever lived, and and obviously we need to do evangelism. We need to always be going out to those who do not know Jesus and proclaiming the good news to them. But the vast majority of Christians who have ever lived over the last 2,000 years were Christian because they were raised in a Christian home. They were born into a Christian family and their parents passed the faith on to them. It is the number one way that God grows his church in history. Children are vital to the growth of God's kingdom in the world. When Christians have children, it is a sign of hope. It's a sign of our hope in God. It's a sign God has not given up on us. It means another generation will carry forward the mission of God in the world. I want you to think about just how integral children are to the story of Scripture. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The promise of redemption is given in the form of a promise to send a baby, to send a son, the seed of the woman, into the world. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, that is between your babies and her babies. And history will unfold as this war between the two seed lines. The serpent will have his offspring, his seed, and the woman will have her seed line as well. God's saying in Genesis 3 that he will deal with sin and defeat the serpent through a child, through a son, the seed of the woman born into the world. And so a seed line is established, really two seed lines, and they are in conflict. In fact, you see the conflict play out in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Cain turns out to be the seed of the serpent. And so like the serpent, he is a murderer. He kills Abel, the seed of the woman. And so then Seth has to be raised up as a replacement. But God's plan of redemption hinges on bringing new life, new children into the world. The rest of Genesis traces out this seed line, this seed promise. God promises a son to Abraham and Sarah. And finally, in their very old age, when they are far beyond seed-bearing age, God miraculously gives them Isaac, obviously born of of the spirit, not of the flesh. And then Isaac marries Rebekah. But once again, it looks like the seed line would be broken because Rebekah is barren. But Isaac prays that she would have a child, and finally God gives her twins. And in fact, she has the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent wrestling with each other in her womb. Jacob and Esau. Well, then Jacob comes along. Jacob has multiple wives, 12 sons from them who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what's interesting with Jacob is it turns out the seed line is carried on with a son from the wife he didn't even want from Leah. Judah carries forward the seed line. The king will come from him. He's promised to be the royal tribe. Eventually the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, end up in Egypt in the book of Exodus. We see Pharaoh attacking the seed of the woman. Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent, carries out Satan's war against the seed of the woman by seeking to kill the baby Hebrew boys. It is infanticide. But God preserves those baby Hebrew boys, the seed line of the woman, especially Moses, is preserved. And you can just keep tracing this all through the Old Testament this battle of the two seed lines that war continues down to the time of jesus birth if ever there was a crisis pregnancy it was mary's but she accepted her role as mother to the messiah even though it would be a great burden to her and then even after jesus was born the crisis continued because as soon as he's born herod as another pharaoh the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy baby jesus the seed of the woman the true promise seed of the woman. And so he has all the baby boys in Bethlehem killed. But Jesus, like Moses before him, survives, he escapes. Revelation 12 describes this in symbols. It describes the dragon seeking to devour the child born to the woman. Another picture of this attack on the seed of the woman seeking to destroy the baby born to her. And of course that battle continues down to our day. Satan is still seeking to destroy children. This has always been his way. He goes after babies because they are the most vulnerable. Satan seeks to take life, especially the life of innocent children who do not deserve to be attacked in this way.
1: And so a culture
0: that will kill children or that rejects children or that hates children is a culture under satanic influence. It is a culture destroying its own future. It is a culture that hates life because it hates the giver of life. Now look, obviously not everyone is called to have children, just like not everyone is called to marriage. That's clear from Scripture. I won't go into that. That is clear from Scripture. But what I'm calling attention to here is our culture's very negative view of children. It is a, pro- it is a problem that we should address.
1: The reality is,
0: is children are a gift, a blessing, and a sign of hope for the future. I love the way Brian Matson puts, puts this in a recent article. Listen to what Brian Matson says. He says, kids are inconvenient. It sounds harsh, but we might as well speak plainly. Children emerge utterly helpless, and you have to do everything for them. And not just occasionally when it fits into your schedule, you have to do everything for them all the time. But the reality is that children aren't just passive consumers, polluters, or zero-sum economic dead weight. They are human beings, and humans are producers. They are thinkers, problem solvers, creators, artists, geniuses in a thousand ways. They're not like animals born simply to hunt, gather, and consume. The military term force multiplier seems apt. Inject a new human being into the community, and you do not have one more mouth to feed. You have one more intelligent and creative mind, one more passionate and compassionate heart, and two more industrious working hands. He says children are 100% added value. Yes, they are demanding, and they take a lot of energy. They do have mouths. But they're not just mouths to feed. Those little mouths laugh, giggle, cry, talk, ask questions, and even dispense wisdom. Moreover, children are a way to extend your influence, discipleship, and to project power into the world beyond your mortal life. You want a legacy? Then produce a family tree. The Bible calls that fruitfulness. And the Bible calls fruitfulness good. Our culture must recover a biblical view of children, and the church must lead the way in that. Third, what must we consider? We must consider the place of sex. One of the reasons our culture embraces abortion is because we have rejected the divine design for sex and for the sexes. This became apparent to me several years ago when I was praying that God would end abortion in our land. And I realized that could not happen unless minds and hearts were changed about sex and sexuality. Unless people were willing to embrace a biblical sex ethic. Here's what you need to understand. Abortion has been so vigorously defended in our culture precisely because our culture has prioritized the sexual desires of adults over the lives of children. That's what's happened, and that is an abomination. What will make abortion unthinkable and, indeed, unnecessary is sexual discipline, sexual Holiness, And these come from embracing God's sexual design for us as men and women. It means understanding marriage and family life as God designed them. For years we have been told abortion is all about women's health care. It's what they call reproductive justice. But with Roe being overturned, it has become obvious it was really about being able to be sexually promiscuous without consequences all along. Abortion made a life of fornication without consequence seem like a real possibility. Sleep around with however you want. If you accidentally get pregnant, well, there's abortion to take care of that. Far too many men and women simply do not want to be responsible for their actions, and abortion has allowed them to be irresponsible. Now understand, given everything I've said, there is certainly a place for showing mercy to those who have sinned, showing mercy to those who have made mistakes. But there is also a place for calling them to repentance and calling them to responsibility for their actions. Some pro-choice people uh, act like pregnancy just happens. A baby is an unwanted and unexpected invader. Invader into the woman's womb, instead of the natural result of actions she and her partner have chosen. That is absurd. You know, there really is a foolproof way to avoid all unwanted pregnancies, and that is abstinence, that is sexual discipline, sexual holiness. Take abortion away, and now sexual immorality gets a lot more risky. And this is why you're seeing such an intense response and so much panic. Because taking abortion away means men might have to marry the women they impregnate more frequently than they have. It means women might have to set aside career ambitions to raise children. It means men might have to provide for those children. And note here, too, you will hear some in the church, some people in the church talk about how, well, what we really need is to not just care for what's in the womb, we need to provide womb-to-tomb security as the answer to abortion. Basically, the idea is make abortion unnecessary by providing all kinds of social services that will completely take care of the woman and her baby at taxpayer expense, a kind of pro-life socialism. I find that approach terribly unhelpful. And here's why. It aims to do the same thing as the pro-choice position, and that is insulate people from the consequences of their choices. It subsidizes irresponsibility in just the same way. Some kind of pro-life socialism, pro-life welfareism that's not the answer. Those kind of programs are always ineffective and inefficient anyway. Here's a much better answer to the problem. Men need to man up and need to not take advantage of women sexually. They need to take responsibility to protect and provide for any children they happen to create. 1 Timothy 5 says, If a man will not care for his own family, he is worse than an unbeliever. I don't know how you get worse than an unbeliever, but that's, that's the destiny for the one who will not take care of his family, including the children he has created. People say, oh, you pro-life people, you, can't, you should not be against abortion unless you're willing to care for all these kids that will be born. No, I'm just saying you need to care for the kids you create. You need to take responsibility for the kids you create the same way I took responsibility for the kids I created. That's all. Take responsibility for yourself. Again, this is really simple, even if our culture doesn't want to hear it. If you're not married, don't have sex. Then abortion should not be needed. In fact, I find it kind of funny how when progressives have to deal with this issue and and when they're pressed to take responsibility for their sexual actions, they kind of reverse-engineer their way into marriage and traditional family life. You'll hear people say things like, well, if I can't abort the baby, then the man's got to take responsibility for it. Yeah, that's what we've been saying all along. Someone pointed me to a discussion on social media uh, where a woman uh, had, had tweeted out Uh, She said, if the pro-life movement was really about babies, we'd have really long maternity leave. And we'd have free diapers and free formula. And someone responded and said, you know, it sounds like what you need is not abortion, but a husband. Because a lot of husbands provide all of those things and more for their wives and for the mothers of their children. Years and years of maternity leave in some cases. And yeah, they'll work a job so they can buy the diapers and the formula and whatever else is needed. It's just funny that when people are pressed to take responsibility for their actions, all of a sudden traditional marriage and family life suddenly look a whole lot more attractive and make a whole lot more sense. The other thing you need to notice is how much the rhetoric over abortion has changed. It used to be a battle over whether or not the child in the womb is really a human. Once it became irrefutably obvious that the child in the womb is a human, the rhetoric shifted and abortion became about justice and equality and freedom for the woman. And so instead of reveling in the fact that they are the life bearers and life givers and life nurturers, Many women today feel it is a great injustice that they get pregnant and men don't. Why? Because it keeps them from the career success and opportunities that men can experience. And so abortion has become necessary in the minds of many to level the playing field between men and women. Abortion is necessary to their particular version of gender equality or sexual equity. Many women today will attribute their career success to abortion. I remember an actress a few years ago who won some award, and she said, I couldn't have won this without abortion. So sacrificing my baby was worth it to get this little gold trophy. That's the logic. People will say taking away abortion will hurt the economy. It'll lower the GDP. Look, I'd rather live in a poor country that does not abort babies than a rich one that does. So if that's the cost, let's pay it. I'm not convinced that is the cost, but I'd say we should pay it if it is. Again, if we want abortion to be unthinkable and unnecessary, we must recover God's design for men and women. God has not made men and women interchangeable. We have different natures and different roles to play, and we need to see the beauty and the glory in that. If women are really supposed to have the exact same life plan as men, then yes, abortion will seem Necessary, But if a woman's life is supposed to have a different focus and a different orientation, which is what scripture and, quite frankly, biology teach, then abortion can be seen for the great injustice that it is. Really, to argue you need abortion for equality is just to fight against the way God made the world. In God's Word, we find sex-specific curses in Genesis 3, And we find plenty of places in Scripture where there are sex-specific commands. Because men and women are designed differently. We are complementary to one another. There are certain areas of life where we do different things. Androgyny and abortion go together but if we deny androgyny and if we embrace and acknowledge the God-given sexual differences between men and women then the justice argument for abortion falls away it's empty let me conclude with this as significant as Dobbs is it is only a tiny blip in the big picture I started off saying the Bible is a heart book and a history book. And we want to win the victory over sin, certainly in our hearts, but we also want to win it in history, in the world. We should want to have Christian hearts, hearts trained by the word of God. That's obvious. But we should also want Christian families and Christian neighborhoods and Christian towns and Christian cities and Christian nations and indeed a Christian world. We should not be satisfied with anything less. Before the Dobbs decision, many progressives saw their cultural victory as complete and inevitable. They would say, we are on the right side of history, we are winning. And that's because their causes like abortion and same-sex marriage and gender ideology seemed to have all the momentum. Now that momentum has been interrupted. Dobbs is a small but important reminder that the game is not over. And God's people have not given up. We have not left the playing field. We are still at work seeking to fulfill our mission to disciple the nations, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. And so we will continue to pray and to preach and to serve and to suffer and to love and to befriend and to sacrifice all for the sake of of Christ's kingdom, which is a kingdom of life and new life, a kingdom of joy and peace, a kingdom of love and truth and justice. That kingdom is our goal and our hope. The victory of that kingdom is sure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.